Hey, Jim, I don't know if you know this, but we're a small podcast. I had started, I started <laughs> noticing that. Yeah. And something that really helps is when people subscribe to us, if they rate, review, subscribe, you know, you've heard it all before. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And so it would really help us if our listeners would go over to youtube.com slash Kim for your life and subscribe to us. Mm-hmm. And to thank our listeners for doing that, we want to offer, if you just enter our giveaway, we're going to give you any merch item that you choose from our store on us as a thank you to one lucky winner. Exactly. So the steps are very simple. Subscribe to our YouTube channel, youtube.com slash at Kim for your life. Mm, yes. And it's also in our show notes. You can just click it. Then take a screenshot, just proving that you subscribe. It's also okay if you've already subscribed in the past. It doesn't have to be a new subscription. Just if you are subscribed, screenshot it, email it to us at Kim for your life at gmail.com with the subject line reading giveaway entry. And then we'll select a winner on March 31st. Okay, so send us your entry before March 31st and maybe you can be the lucky winner and it'll help us out a ton. And you pick any merch item you want. So go ahead and go pick it out and dream about it, you know? Dream, wish, hope you're the lucky number one. (laughs) All right, thanks y'all. This feels a little weird. Here we go. Hey, I'm Melissa. I'm Jam. And I'm a chemist. And I'm not. And welcome to Chemistry for Your Life. The podcast helps you understand the chemistry of your everyday life. In person. We yep. are recording in person. Yep. Can you believe it? I can't believe it. It's so weird. We haven't recorded together in person, face to face in about 14 months. Yeah. And even then, I don't know if we knew for sure it was going to be the last time that we recorded in person, but Mm-mm. we thought about it and then grabbed all the stuff from your old office mm-hmm. just in case, but we had not done any planning at all. It wasn't like, Hey, if this happens, here's how you record on your own, Melissa. Like yeah. we didn't do any of that stuff. No, you had to walk me through it on my old computer. <laughs> yeah. That was about 12 years old or whatever. <laughs> and it was good that we grabbed everything because when lockdown happened, it was locked down. I was not allowed to go on campus. Right, right. Yeah. Gosh, dude, that's crazy. It's but we, crazy. I think we did take a photo. We often did like just selfies mm-hmm. on recording days for yeah. Instagram. So I think we actually do have a photo of the very last time I, I recorded think, in person. Was I wearing a red sweater? I think I remember that. I think so. Well, maybe we'll find that and post it. And then we take a selfie today so you yeah. can see then and now and yeah. how much we've aged and changed. Yeah. Um, way more wrinkles. Bags under our eyes, all that stuff. The weight of COVID on our shoulders. (laughs) Both of our hair. I don't know if you guys have seen this in a while, but Melissa and I both, our hair has gone completely gray. (laughs) That's why I'm wearing a hat. (laughs) So you can't tell. (laughs) Okay, Jim, on to the chemistry. Okay. So as promised today, we are going to be talking about some recent research related to histamines and antihistamines. Okay, sweet. So all this research is done in the last 10-ish years. It's not exhaustive. Okay. It's just the ones that I thought were the most interesting that I was the most excited by. Okay. And then there's one that I'm really excited about, but I saved it for last just to keep you on your toes. Okay, sweet. I think all of them are really cool. And I received a few requests from this, especially from listener Nikki In, Mm -hmm. And I wanted to honor that request and to give you guys some more of the current research going on in chemistry. Sweet. 
looking forward to it. Okay. So the first one is a 2014 paper. It's published by a husband and wife duo, Regine and Gerhard Grines. I think is how you say it. Wow. I think they're German, but they're at a Canadian university called Simon Fraser University, I think. Mm. And they published a study where they analyzed how bed bugs signal to each other to come and join the feast, basically. You know, somehow they let each other know. Uh Uh-huh, uh-huh. And so they took analytical instruments, uh, NMR and a mass spectrometer, and they analyzed all of the chemicals in the feces and skin that the bed bugs shed. Uh Uh-huh. They said they had to amass a huge amount of feces, which... Oh, gosh. <laughs> and from bed bugs, too. It's like the, these tiny little morsels. Yeah, and one of the researchers, like, just let the bed bugs bite her so that they had something that they could be feasting on, basically. Oh, wow. Jeez. Which, I'm not sure how that's ethical, but I guess if you're letting them do it to yourself, it's fine. Right. Yeah. No one else can make you do it, but if you decide to, maybe it's fine. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) So they got all this and analyzed it and found that histamine is in the feces and the skin that bed bugs shed. Uh Uh-huh. And that histamine, as well as some other volatile molecules, will attract bed bugs and bring them to one another. Hmm. So they used histamine and a few other molecules and made a bed bug lure uh-huh. which attracted the bed bugs to come to this trap and kept them there also. Uh-huh. So that was the hard part was getting one that kept them there. Yeah. Interesting. So it, it kept them there and they were pretty successful trying in a few different settings. But the hard part about scientific research is now taking that and adapting it to be used safely in homes. Right. Right. And have someone who will mass produce that product. Right. So that's something that is kind of a theme today that we're going to see is there's these really cool prototypes that have worked well in the lab setting. Mm -hmm. But because it's hard to adapt it or there's so many hoops that you have to jump through or you have to get a company who's willing to buy in quite literally, it's hard to see these actually come to the market. Right. Okay. Yeah. And something that was different about COVID-19 and these vaccines that were made really quickly Mm -hmm. is there was no difficulty to get people to buy in. Right. Yeah. There was already a very pressing thing happening Mm -hmm. that people could get on board with. Yes. Whereas like, hey, new bed bug research. Yeah. Or whatever. It's like people, most of us don't encounter bed bugs. Right. And then we're like, how are we going to get on board with that? Yeah. Or be motivated to. Huh. Exactly. And I think that's something some people were concerned about how quickly everything went down with the COVID vaccines. But in my mind, I thought, yeah, that makes sense because there's not waiting to try to get people to be convinced that it's worth it for them to invest into this. Right. Right. Especially if the people who have power that like can green light things or allocate money or whatever, they're convinced too. Right. Whereas for bedbugs trying to lobby your, we try to call up one of our to senators and be like, Hey, would you please support this bed bug <laughs> research? They would not return our call. I'm sure. Right. Exactly. So that's an interesting thing that I thought would be good and relevant to chat about. Yeah. Interesting. Okay. Yeah. So that's the first research paper that I thought was really interesting. One other comment that I saw, they posted an article about this 
journal, peer-reviewed paper mm-hmm. in Chemistry and Engineering News Magazine. Mm-hmm. And there's some comments and someone also commented that a lot of volatile organic compounds aren't really safe to have around humans or pets. And so that's another barrier to make it good for use in home is if they have other molecules besides just histamine uh-huh. that could impact us as well. Right, right. Okay, so that's a histamine article. Now let's switch gears and let's talk about a 2019 paper by Dr. Megan Blackledge and Dr. Heather Miller. Okay. And they're studying antihistamines. Nice. So what they found is that antihistamine, a specific one, loratadine, which uh-huh. I used to take it every single day. Uh-huh. I recently had to switch because I had a huge allergy attack in this spring. It's been very bad. Oh, yeah. So is that one associated with a brand name? Yes. The brand name is Claritin. Okay. Good to know. That's what I've been taking. Yeah, I've been all up in the allergy medicine and the histamines. And actually because of that, I realized (laughs) this is kind of an aside, but I went to the store with my friend who needed uh, some sleep medicine Uh and she was going to buy that z stuff. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. And the organic name of the molecule on the package sounded really familiar. And I realized that z and Benadryl have the same active ingredient. Oh yeah, I've heard that that what basically makes us sleepy and Benadryl is the same things that they'll put into things that are actually intended to make you sleepy, right. like a sleeping pill or whatever. Yeah. And so the only reason I even noticed that or paid attention or cared was because I'd been taking all these antihistamines lately, but mm. I was so excited because we had just finished recording the episode about allergies and I knew why it made you sleepy because oh, of the H1 yeah. receptors. Right, 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 right. Interesting. So that was kind of an aside, yeah. <laughs> but still related to histamines and antihistamines. But so this one, loratadine mm-hmm. is associated with claritin and it's non-drowsy. So it probably works by a different mechanism. Okay. But loratadine can also break up bacterial microfilms and help increase the efficiency of antibiotics in antibiotic resistant bacteria. Huh. So those are some kind of big words here. Yeah. I'm going to break it down a little bit. So after we started using antibiotics in medicine a lot, some bacteria began to develop a resistance to antibiotics. Oh yes. My wife has talked about this a ton. Mm-hmm. Yes. So a lot of that is because of the over overuse of antibiotics. So if you give antibiotics to someone with a virus, their body is any bacteria that is in their body can build up a resistance to that antibiotic. Right, right, right. right. So that's kind of a problem. There's, <laughs> there's bacteria that can hurt us that are beginning to be resistant to this medicine. Right. So research are trying to figure out how to solve that problem and how to either enhance the, the, antibiotic itself or reduce the resistance of the bacteria. You know, people are addressing this from both avenues, but Dr. Blackledge and Dr. Miller, they were looking at an antidepressant that they knew helped a strain of staph, you know, the bacteria staph. Mm -hmm. Uh, They knew it helped the antibiotics work against staph. So they'd been working on it. It was really effective, but the antidepressant in such large quantities to help it be effective could be toxic. Oh, I see. So it wasn't really a perfect solution. So, Mm -hmm. you know, they had been working on that 
And then Dr. Blackledge went to prepare her organic chemistry lecture, which I love because that's what I do too. <laughs> and she noticed the chemical structure of loratadine. She just saw it when she was looking through some of her organic chemistry materials. Uh-huh. And it's a very similar structure to that antidepressant. Okay. So she, a light bulb went off and she wondered, can I use this instead? And it's not toxic in the quantities we might need and be a safer option. Uh And it worked. No way. So she combined that with like an antibiotic so that it Mm -hmm. made the bacteria less resistant. Yes. It didn't work on every bacteria. Right. But when she added the loratadine to this strain of bacteria and the antibiotic, it was found to be eight to 500 times more sensitive to at least one strain. Wow. I know. Eight to 100? Eight to 500, which is a huge range. Jeez, that's crazy. (laughs) So I'm sure there's like different settings or different concentrations or things that impact how much Mm -hmm. more sensitive it is. But I thought that was so interesting. That's crazy. Wow. And they even found that it was more effective on treating what's known as bacterial biofilm. So like a film literally of bacteria can build up on catheters and other medical equipment. Uh uh And it's really hard to treat them because they'll be resistant to antibiotics and they just are hard to break up. Right. And when she applied the loratadine to those, it also would break up those biofilms or prevent them from forming even. Nice. Interesting. Isn't that so cool? Some allergy medicine. That's crazy. Just some allergy medicine. That we've all known Mm -hmm. about forever. And it's (laughs) already safe for human use. So that probably will be easier to move forward than some other things. Right, right. Which is just very exciting. That's a 2019 paper. Um, I haven't seen any more. I sort of looked quickly at their research to see if anything's happened since. But 2019 is pretty recent in research terms, you know? So it can be hard to get more data and put it out just in a year and a half or whatever. Right, right. So... Something else that is interesting, though, is in our bodies, loratadine gets broken down to other byproducts. Mm. And those byproducts didn't enhance the effectiveness of the antibiotic. Okay. So that means that this particular medicine would probably be most effective as a topical application where it's not in our body. So it's not getting broken down by our body. So it probably would be a cream Mm. or something that we apply to our skin and we don't consume it to increase the effectiveness of antibiotics applied directly to a wound or something. Got it. Okay. Or on those catheters to break up the biofilm. Right. Right. Interesting. But it would still be, say you're taking antibiotics Mm -hmm. inside and they are worried about the resistance of bacteria to it. It might still do something, but it's not as not as effective because it'll, it'll turn into other things in our bodies. Yeah. I think they're worried about if it would work in the human body as well as it does on an out of the human body application. Got it. Got it. So it may do something, but once it's broken down, they tested that byproduct and it didn't work at all. Mm, Okay. So I think they're concerned about that application, but I'm really excited about the topical applications. I would be surprised if we didn't see those starting to be used soonish, like mm-hmm. within the next five to 10 years to help those bacterial biofilms. Right. Hmm. So that one was amazing to me. Yeah. That's crazy. That's just cool that you could look at structures and, and deduce things from it. Like, I know. I know that's something that's like normal in your world, but the idea that this information just been out there mm-hmm. and it took someone mm-hmm. who was 
had information about a problem and knew about the structure of that antidepressant mm-hmm. and was able to just see that it was similar. Like that's a, just a, it took one person to realize that. I know. And just to think, to form that hypothesis about like, okay, these are similar. Yeah. Maybe it'll work. And it did. Mm-hmm. Like that's nuts. I know. And that's a lot of the nature of research is it's kind of like luck sometimes. It's not really luck. You're in there, you're doing the work. She had put in the time to know about these antidepressants. Mm -hmm. But if she hadn't spotted that structure when she was preparing that lecture, if she wasn't a teacher or something, she may never have come across it and connected those dots. Right, right. There is a similar story of someone who won a Nobel Prize for there's these molecules called crown ethers, which probably doesn't mean anything to you, uh-huh. but they can basically be built in these specific amounts that can capture ions really easily. So mm. they're very useful. And he basically, I don't know if this was real. This is what I heard from chemist folklore, but he was doing a purification technique and he got some stuff that he thought was just not what he wanted when he was doing the reaction. And mm-hmm. he set it off to the side and he came back and it had formed crystals overnight, which is really hard to do and means that substance was really pure. Oh, weird. And then he started to study the substance and that was those crown ethers that he made on accident as a byproduct and was basically going to throw it away, but he left it on his bench top and it wow. formed a crystalline material. Gosh, that's crazy. I know. Like, what are the chances? Man. And, and it's like, it's nuts to think about that that could be anybody, you know, just getting mm-hmm. really lucky. But when you think about how many chemists are out there doing their normal job, mm-hmm. you know, who, who knows how many thousands of chemists every day are mixing some stuff. The chances of something cool accidentally happening start going up yep. where it's like, okay, any one of these 20,000 chemists, <laughs> yeah, at, at one, any day of the week could at some point accidentally find something cool. <laughs> yeah. And it's a little bit of laziness. Like you're not really supposed to leave. It's called a fraction. So it's basically like a flask uh-huh. full of solvent and something dissolved in it uh-huh. just out on your bench top. You should have properly disposed of it before you left. Right. But he right. left it out and it turned into something and it worked out really well. Yeah. So that like little bit of oversight or not doing the number one best, most safe thing helped him out a little. Yeah. Interesting. But you have to be observant enough to notice too. That's part of science is you have to make observations and draw conclusions. So he noticed what was happening and he didn't think, huh, that's weird and move on. He thought, huh, that's weird. Let's figure out what the heck this is. Yeah. Huh. That's crazy. That's cool. It's like takes the luck and the curiosity, I guess. Yeah, exactly. So that's very cool. Um, I was really excited about that story. And just on accident, this was not on purpose, but all of these studies that we're talking about today are actually, there's a woman involved in the research. So oh, that's nice. been fun too. Yeah. <laughs> Yay, women in STEM. Because you like women, right? I mean, you like have friends uh, that are women okay. and stuff. I don't really, I personally don't associate with very many women. Right, right, right. <laughs> just kidding. Um, I have lots of friends that are women. I'm for women in STEM. I'm all for equality. Yay, women in STEM. Yeah. And if you guys have ever looked at our hashtags, women in STEM is a hashtag in every single post we ever post. Yeah, pretty much. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. So then I'm going to briefly tell you about, there's two papers that were before 2010. Okay. I didn't read them too in depth. I'm just going to briefly let you guys know that they showed there's two different antihistamines. Mm-hmm. One of them could aid in the treatment of Alzheimer's disease. Awesome. By increasing cognitive ability for Alzheimer's patients. Wow. 
They didn't report on the mechanism as far as I know. Mm -hmm. And another was shown to block a receptor that was involved in the progression of the disease. So that's pretty cool. So uh, both those for Alzheimer's. Oh, cool. Both for Alzheimer's. Yeah. So both of them have different ways of aiding in the treatment of Alzheimer's. So that's another cool application of antihistamines to help us in another area of health, which is crazy. That's, that's so cool to know. My grandmother had Alzheimer's. I've probably talked about that on the podcast before, but just, I feel like for some reason I've heard in the past, I don't know, like 10 years, all these things where there's promise. It's not Mm -hmm. like it's a one, you know, one and done fix or something like that but promise of little things like that, that mm-hmm. could help at least, yeah. which is so cool, man. It is cool. And then the great thing about all this antihistamine research in my mind is antihistamines are already safe and effective. Right. Right. So we know the risk of taking them and it's worth it to take them. Yeah. It is relatively low. They're available over the counter. These are safe products to use and then finding new applications for them that will help us stay healthy in other ways is mm-hmm. just really exciting to me. <laughs> yeah. Did that paper about the Alzheimer's stuff, is that antihistamine one that's already common that we all take or is it a specific one that's kind of different? Or did you, do you remember? I don't remember off the top of my head. I know it was published in Nature in 2009, but I can't remember exactly if they, if I have the antihistamine off the top of my head, but I can try to go find it and okay. look. Okay, sweet. So the last paper... This is my personal favorite. Mm-hmm. It's, it was in 2012. Dr. Heather Clark and a researcher in her lab, Dr. Kevin Cash, mm-hmm. created a glowing sensor that can be injected into the skin to show histamine levels. Whoa. I know. So sensor, what does that mean? Like it's just a chemical mix that shows things or is it like a... So originally she, I'll sort of go through her research story. Okay. Okay. So her research was on organic dyes that you could inject into the skin like a tattoo Mm -hmm. and they would respond to certain chemicals or molecules of interest. If you, they interacted with this molecule, they would emit this kind of light. Okay. But that's pretty limited to find organic molecules that are dyes that will interact and emit light in exactly the way you want them to. They're not going to respond to everything. Okay. So they needed a more customizable approach is a good way to put it. So her new approach was to use what's called nanoparticles. That's exactly what it sounds like. It's a really small particle. And that, that nanoparticle has a dye inside of it. And she pairs that with an enzyme. Okay. So the enzyme will react with whatever molecule you want and it can also use oxygen. That's the the key that you need for the right enzyme. Okay. So if you have that enzyme, when the molecule that you want and oxygen are both present, the oxygen will be used up, right? Okay. And so will the other molecule. So say for example, if you have histamine as your molecule of interest, Mm -hmm. you can find an enzyme that will react with histamine and oxygen. It'll use those up and create new byproducts. Okay. So she did that. She would find enzymes that would do that. And the 
dye would glow inversely proportional to the amount of oxygen that was present. Okay. So there's normally oxygen around in your body, but if you have an enzyme that's going to use it up in the presence of histamine, then it will start to glow because we're missing oxygen. Okay. Got it. Less oxygen, more glow. Less oxygen, more glow. Got it. So she basically combined these nanoparticles with this enzyme and injected it into the skin of mice with histamine and then injected it into the skin of mice without histamine. And when the histamine was present, it would glow. And when the histamine wasn't, it would not glow. Oh, interesting. That's cool. I know. That's crazy. So that she would just be able to look, like see that through the surface like the skin of the mice it was strong enough to show i think so that's my understanding wow that's cool that's crazy i know and they even tested it you know this concentration of histamine this much glow so Uh based on the glow they can get a pretty good idea of the concentration of histamine wow man dude that's crazy isn't that amazing yeah seriously but like with everything we have to take this and adapt it for use in humans So right now, there's not a safe application for humans. Okay. And I don't think they've done human trials. They don't know what toxic impact it could have on your body. Right. But also, it's not sensitive enough. Okay. It's about, I think it was four millimolar, which is just a unit of concentration. Uh And humans can have histamine levels as low as one millimolar, I think is the detection they wanted to get to. Got it. So yeah, it wouldn't help us much at the moment in the human level. Right. So they need to be able to make it more sensitive and they need to make sure it's going to be safe for humans. Right. Right. So I looked, 2012 has been longer ago in terms of research. So I would think that there would be some updates, but I didn't find any easily accessible. I went to her website and didn't really see anything recently on Uh histamine. So I don't know if that kind of stalled out or what, but even the fact that they were able to make that and see it work in mice is incredible to me. Yeah, seriously. Wow. That's crazy. Can you imagine if you have really bad allergies or something, someday we could just have like a little tattoo spot or something Uh that could alert us to the level of histamine in our blood or something. Yeah. That'd be crazy. Yeah. Like, Oh, my arm is going better taken in a histamine. Yeah, that's true. And do you think it would be a little bit ahead of some of the symptoms? Yeah. Like, because if it's already present in our bodies, but maybe it hasn't started causing issues s- yet, issues yet, that'd be really helpful. That would be really helpful. Cause yeah, like you talked about in the previous episode, most of us take antihistamines too late. Yeah. We've already experienced tons of symptoms Mm-hmm. But those receptors are already like have already gotten a lot of histamine. Yeah. And so we, the antihistamine we take won't really undo that necessarily super fast or whatever. So it'd be yeah. nice to have that ahead of time. huh? And I wonder too, if maybe they could get the detection limit down low enough. It's just starting to go yeah. and then it'll glow and then you could take it ahead of time or something. That would yeah. be amazing. That'd be awesome. It's just fun to daydream about the possibilities. That that reminds me of uh, Frodo slash Bilbo's sword in Lord oh, of the Rings. Yeah. Sting that glows when orcs are nearby. <laughs> it's like if we could only have that. And what better enemy to, to have that be connected to than allergies? Yeah. You know? Oh, it's glowing. 
There must be allergies nearby. <laughs> it would also be interesting if you, even if maybe they don't find like a safe application for humans, uh-huh. that glowing dye could be used. You could take a prick of blood and and put it with that dye and see if it starts to glow or something. You right, know? right. Maybe there's other applications for the same very useful product that we can, you know, figure out. Yeah. Yeah. Good point. Huh. Science is so cool, but in some ways people will do this preliminary research and that's, you know, that's what they can do and they'll put it out there. And then you have to hope that someone else can come along and see that and do more. Right. It's like it builds on itself. Yeah. Somebody sees it. That's already doing some research in another kind of adjacent area. It's like, Ooh, sweet glowing Mm -hmm. thing. We could maybe apply to this thing that we're doing or whatever. Right. Yeah. Yeah. So, and sometimes that's, how it goes. And that's another reason the process can be really slow. You know, Mm -hmm. sometimes Mm -hmm. we'll publish papers and it's a great foundation, but it takes five years for the person who can take it to the next step to get where they need to be and to find the paper and then be able to do what they need to do to move it forward. Yeah. Yeah. I was in a conference actually just this morning and, uh, one of the people we were talking to Mm -hmm. their labs, main goal is to create new instruments to study how students learn things. Mm -hmm. And then that's it. They create the instruments and the, the primary investigator said, our lab's job is to make instruments. And then you guys get to take them and run with them and do whatever you want to apply them to help students learn better. Yeah. And that is kind of what I think is a good metaphor for research. You know, one group comes and does this and that's they're, they're really good experts at making glowing nanoparticles, but maybe someone else comes along and can be really good at making a new application for those glowing nanoparticles. And so science is sort of a ball that gets passed from one person to the next to the next. Yeah. yeah. And that's really how progress gets made. That's awesome. Yeah. That's a good way to put it, that it's just lots of people passing a ball along. And sometimes it feels like it's really slow, but right. for most of us who don't even know things are, are happening, I guess. Yeah. By the time it actually gets to a point where it's it's news to us as regular folk, it feels like kind of fast, I think, yeah. for most of those things. Um, we were like, oh, hey, this new thing that is awesome. But then you look <laughs> at it and it's like, oh, no, that's been like 15 years in the making. Or yeah. <laughs> Sometimes that'll even happen to me with things that I'm looking at. Like, wow, this is amazing. This is so cool. And then I realized it's in an article magazine from 10 years ago. Yeah, yeah. And then I think, how did I miss this 10 years ago? This is amazing. Yeah. <laughs> or why haven't we all heard about this? This is so cool. So Yeah, yeah. Well, that's it for today. That's your um, update and research chemistry lesson. Awesome. I love it. I love these. Just like a little bit of a peek behind the curtain of what is going down in the chemistry and science world that is still brewing and yeah, it's just cool. I mean, I think I could probably go look for this kind of stuff, but I wouldn't even know what's cool. And there's, it's so, it's so <laughs> dense, all those yeah. papers. So it's kind of cool having it be just boiled down and the cool parts told to us, yeah. regular people, but. Well, I'm glad you like it. Well, speaking of things that you really enjoyed or liked, such as today's episode, do you have anything happy from your week that you want to share about? Yes, I do. Um, you already know this, but for all you listeners, I was able to hang with my family last week. And so we try to like every six months or so, my immediate family on mm-hmm. my side, um, try to get together. And the easiest place to do that has been a lake house that one of my family members has and that he lets us use it when we need to. And 
it kind of helped be a somewhat more central location for yeah. my younger brother and, and sister-in-law and their daughter who are in Kentucky because it's kind of in like East Texas. Oh, so they don't yeah. have to come into Texas and then go all the way across it over to where <laughs> my mom lives in Abilene. And so it saves them like six hours yeah. there. And then uh, it's not not nearly as bad of a drive though still for, for M and I and for my mom and older brother. But I'll have to say we got to hang out there for like five days. And Ooh, nice. my son and then my uh, brother's daughter were able to hang out. And it's just kind of fun. It's only the third time they've been able to be together. And like yeah. over time, their interactions are just funnier and <laughs> they are more interested in each other and stuff. But it was just cool to get to catch up and spend some time out in nature and near a lake and go on walks and stuff like that. So yeah, that is nice. Definitely highlight of my week for sure. What about you? Yeah. So mine's actually pretty similar, I guess with COVID some of the restrictions slowly being lifted and most of myself and my close friends are starting to be vaccinated and I just have really enjoyed seeing people and knowing it's safe. Mm-hmm. Um, according to the CDC, it's safe for people who are fully vaccinated to interact. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And it's really nice. So I had a group meeting with my advisors in person, which uh-huh. never happens. <laughs> <laughs> I've been able to see a few friends lately. I've been able to hug people. You know, yeah. it's just it feels like such a treat every time I get to see anyone, even just like recording in person. It's yeah, yeah. so much better and it feels so much easier than being on Zoom. It's just nice. Totally. Dude, yeah. I'm I hear I hear that for sure. So yeah, I'm just happy about that. So thanks to those researchers who worked really hard, like the ones we talked about today on creating a COVID nineteen vaccine that could get us to some level of normalcy, but still be careful and safe. There are people who aren't vaccinated. So be careful about that as well. Um, But yeah, I'm really thankful for that. And I'm thankful for all of you listeners for coming and listening and to you, Jam, for being so excited about me just sharing about science research. (laughs) What a dream that I get to do this with you. Well, thanks for, yeah. Thanks for sharing all that research with us. And Melissa and I have a lot of ideas for topics of chemistry and everyday life, but we want to hear from you, the things that you wonder about, the questions you have. So reach out to us, please, on Gmail, Twitter, Instagram, or Facebook at Chem for Your Life. That's Chem, F-O-R, Your Life, to share your thoughts and ideas. And if you'd like to help us keep our show going and contribute to cover the cost of making it, go to ko-fi.com slash chemforyourlife and donate the cost of a cup of coffee. If you're not able to donate, you can still help us by subscribing on your favorite podcast app and rating and writing a review on Apple Podcasts. That also helps us to share chemistry with even more people. This episode of Chemistry for Life was created by Melissa Collini and Jam Robinson. References for this episode can be found in our show notes or on our website. Jam Robinson is our producer, and we'd like to give a special thanks to A. Kiwasong and S. Navarro, who reviewed this episode. Mm-hmm.